welcome to Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm your host, Camden Bird, and I am an assistant professor of history at Eastern Illinois University. I'm very excited to introduce my guest today, Dr. Brandon Ward. Uh, Dr. Ward is a professor at Georgia State University's Perimeter College, where he teaches history and Africana study classes. He is the author of the brand new book, Living Detroit, Environmental Activism in the Age of Urban Crisis, uh, recently published by uh, Routledge Press. Brandon, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so, um, thanks so much for having me, Camden. Um, I really enjoy the podcast. I feel honored to be in, in the company of, of scholars I really admire, and, and I'm, I'm just so happy to be here talking about the book. Oh, it's a, it's a delight for us, and it's a book that is important and, and interesting and, and well-suited for uh, the theme of the podcast as well, so we're, we feel fortunate to have you on to talk about it. Um, so, so maybe we'll just jump right in and, and maybe actually, well, I always like to understand sort of where an author's coming from uh, as they jump into this project. So maybe you could give us a little bit of the background of the project. Where did it begin? What led you to study urban environmentalisms in uh, post-war Detroit? Well, first, I, I really appreciate that you used the plural term environmentalisms. Um, I think that's that's really important uh, a really and a really great way to describe the project because I think we often think of environmentalism as this monolithic thing that is one thing that was bequeathed to us by prominent individuals, Gifford Pinchot, Theodore Roosevelt, John Weir, you know, Rachel Carson, and so on. And and um, but environmentalism is is so many different things and um, comprises uh, has so many different origin points and 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 goals and objectives that it really doesn't make a lot of sense to describe it as one one thing. And I actually started this book by really being interested in um, industrial workers um, and how they managed uh, working and living in really polluted and industrialized and challenging environments and how um, workers were dependent on these jobs for a, to make a living. Um, but these same jobs, uh, these same factories they worked for were often making them and their families sick and polluting their communities and polluting the places where they um, liked to hunt and fish and boat and, and recreate at. Um, and so I, I initially thought I would do this as kind of a, a regional history of the industrial Midwest. But as soon as I got to Detroit and started studying this, I found that I just could not stop. Like every time I started pulling on strings, I just kept finding more and more things to unravel. And so when I, I, I thought this was going to be a book about industrial workers and environmentalism, but I started finding that I couldn't talk about industrial workers without talking about what was going on in the inner city and the things that African-Americans were caring about and uh, the challenges they were facing with the urban crisis and the environmental consequences of that. And then I, could, I found I couldn't talk about African-Americans in the inner city without talking about the suburbs and suburban environmentalism and how that was playing a role in contributing to environmental inequality in the region. And so um, I, I decided to do kind of a metropolitan history that allowed me to look at these various actors in different parts of the city and kind of come up with a, a more diverse picture of, of environmentalism or environmentalisms um, and how different people uh, were pursuing environmental activism for very different uh, reasons and objectives. So that's that's sort of where this came from and how it, it became a Detroit-centric uh, book. Yeah, and you do such a great job of, of laying out the different stakeholders as these debates develop, too. Um, and and I, I personally love the use of environmentalisms in your book because you do track that there is no one thing. Um, and, and in fact, it fractures a lot based on where you live, who you are, and sort of the way that you view and operate and, and, and interact with the natural world on a regular basis. You know, your book is focused on the post-war era, but you do, you do yeah. sort of start that the origins of these environmental battles uh, really begin in the Great Depression and the succeeding uh, war years. What, what makes this era so significant for the creation of a new environmental movement in Detroit? And, and how do these ideas lead to fundamental changes in the landscape of Detroit itself? Two things were happening during the Great Depression and with the New Deal. One is that there was a lot of focus on urban housing and the condition of housing in Detroit. And 
uh, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt visits Detroit in 1936 in the uh, east side Detroit neighborhood called Black Bottom and kicks off a slum clearance project, um, which would be the first of um, what I would characterize as an era in which slum clearance, which is a term they use, which I kind of bristle at because of the unfortunate connotations and kind of racialization of the way slum mm -hmm. was um, envisioned. Um, but they called it slum clearance and it kicks off a wave where city plan planners saw um, the destruction of neighborhoods as a step towards urban renewal. And this would go on uh, through the 1960s, but it really starts during uh, the 19, it really starts during the 1930s. And that becomes so central to what African-Americans are going to fight back against, uh, which was the wholesale clearance of entire neighborhoods of housing, which was already in very short supply, particularly for African-Americans who were squeezed into segregated neighborhoods and didn't have a lot of housing choices to begin with. So that's going to be really important for um, uh, black environmental activism in the post-war uh, era is fighting against uh, the destruction of their neighborhoods. There was also um, efforts at creating new forms of suburban living and the resettlement administration was especially involved in, in these demonstration projects uh, in the country that they called, throughout the country that they called uh, Greenbelt Projects. And these were supposed to blend the best of urban and rural living and provide new forms of uh, neighborhoods that would be affordable to working class people and which would provide access to green spaces, which would provide access to gardens for growing fresh, fresh uh, fruits and vegetables. Uh, so there was a lot of really creative thinking about new forms of uh, suburban living that could, that could come out of this. But then all of this gets a giant shove uh, during World War II. And that becomes a really watershed moment because Detroit does so much to uh, retool, Detroit industry does so much to retool for the war effort. Detroit becomes known as the arsenal of democracy. The uh, defense industry brings tens of thousands of migrants to Detroit, many of them from the South, uh, a lot of them African-American and creates huge demands on housing and environmental resources in Detroit like parks and like recreation. And all of this comes to a head with the Detroit uh, riot of uh, 1943, which starts on Belle Isle, which is an island park uh, fairly close to downtown in the middle of the uh, Detroit River. And it was one of the few places that was accessible to African-Americans on the east side of the city. 34 people die in the aftermath of the violence, the mob violence and police violence towards African-Americans. 25 of the, of the uh, victims were African-Americans. And the lessons that, that city planners and policymakers take out of this is that more sub the development of the suburbs could provide a sort of pressure relief valve for all that housing pressure and recreational pressure in the uh, inner city. And so this is going to create a pattern or a, um, a precedent for devoting a lot more energy to building in the suburbs, to building massive parks in the suburbs. And that's going to become a, a key part of the story later on in the post-war um, era. And really creating pleasing environments and attractive environments in the suburbs is going to become an important goal of policymakers and planners that comes out of this World War II era. Yeah. And it, so you have already sort of, you know, at the, the, the beginning of your book, you sort of lay out these these divergent views of how nature's being shaped and, and the origins of, you know, what we can see as two divergent beliefs of environmentalism, right? So you have African-American environmentalism or black environmental activism in Detroit, which is really sort of pushing back on some of the worst aspects of, of, of what you call, you know, of, of what they're calling slum clearance. Um uh, while you also have this suburban environmentalism that's starting to develop, which is, you know, sort of, you know, the park-like, uh, scenic, um, you know, green spaces uh, for everyone, well, everyone allowed in the suburbs, um, yep. right? And so you, you, yeah, I found that really compelling and you, you lay it out uh, really clearly in your book of sort of how we already are starting to see divergent views of what environmental environmentalism means depending on who you are and where you live in Detroit. I, I wonder... If we can move out to uh, the Detroit suburbs for a second, um, 
because as you know, there's this this other environmentalism starting to take shape. Um, and, and you follow the history of municipal authorities, right, that are developing these park systems in the metropolitan fringe. Um, I'm wondering if we can talk about an organization like the Huron-Clinton Metropolitan Authority. What's this organization's main objective and, and how does it embody this sort of suburban environmental ethic? Yeah, there were some really powerful uh, sort of regional and suburban-centric institutions that were really um, responsible for, uh, played a role in, in uh, developing the suburbs and played a big role in facilitating white flight from the city into the suburbs. And as you just mentioned, flight for people who were allowed in the suburbs, and that was almost entirely uh, uh, white residents. I kind of became interested in, in the question of how regional institutions like regional planning agencies, like the Huron-Clinton Metropolitan Authority, which was the institution which was responsible for create, creating these massive metro parks in the suburbs uh, that ranged from several hundred acres to several thousand acres in size. They were really meant as like places you would go and spend a day, uh, spend a weekend day um, using. And they were almost entirely located on the suburban fringe of the city. From their perspective, what they were doing um, was preserving lands which were going to otherwise be swallowed up by, by um, uh, suburban residencies, by industry, and kind of taking advantage of uh, the fact that they could still afford to acquire those parklands before it was too late. And I think that's an important, mm -hmm. an important goal. Mm -hmm. The problem with that, though, is that their funding model was... Uh, levying property tax on all households in, uh, at that time, the four county region of uh, four counties of southeastern Michigan. And so everybody who lived in the four counties in southeastern Michigan, including the city, people who lived in the city of Detroit, were paying into this system that was then basically only providing parks and parkland and access to parks for suburban residents. Now, technically, urban inner city residents could use those parks, but they were often 15, 20, 25 miles uh, away from the city center. Um, there was very poor public transit access to those by design because suburbanites didn't want urban African-American residents to have easy access to the, to the suburbs. And a significant percentage of African-American residents didn't, didn't own automobiles. And so even though they were a part of paying into the system, they had very little um, comparatively access to those, uh, to those parks. And those parks were, were also um, creating, you know, pleasant environments to live in and were, were helping to facilitate uh, capital accumulation in the suburbs and make the suburbs richer places. And so they, you know, unintentionally um, were, were contributing to uh, metropolitan inequality, were contributing to the fact that the suburbs had a lot of green spaces and the inner city in comparison had very few parks. And the, the Huron Clinton Metropolitan Authority was very uninterested in helping build parks in the inner city. And so the reason I think that HCMA and other regional institutions are important is that you can have goals that are technically sort of colorblind institutions don't have, aren't necessarily trying to increase metropolitan inequality, but the effects of what they're doing are facilitating white flight, are leaving behind African-Americans in the inner city and are creating widening environmental inequalities. Yeah. You know, as I was reading that chapter of, of your book, I, I couldn't help but feel like, you know, sort of it would work perfectly in tandem with sort of Thomas Agrew's book on, on Detroit, right? That you're sort of tracking this environmental component of what is this large movement to keep African-Americans out of the suburbs. And, and that has an environmental component as well, right? Yeah, that's right. I think, I think that's a really nice way of, of describing it. I, I was, um, and I think some of these environmental aspects have played a role in books like uh, uh, Origins of the Urban Crisis by Tom Segrew and mm -hmm. some of these other books on the urban crisis. But instead of kind of having them as background, as kind of scenery, I try to move some of that that is some of some of those issues to the forefront and and make those kind of the center centerpiece of of this book. I did want to plug another per, another scholar who's done really good work on um, talking about parks and the suburbs 
is uh, Joseph Ciadella. Um, and he wrote a book called Motor City Green. Um, it just won a best book mm-hmm. prize um, uh, with the Midwest History Association last year. And that's also a really fantastic look at uh, landscapes and environmental change in, in Detroit. So so I also, yeah, really highly recommend that book for for learning more about these issues. Well, you know, we we begin to explore sort of the varied environmentalisms of metropolitan Detroit. You also bring in this discussion of, of what you call working class environmentalism. I've got a quote here how you begin the discussion of working class environmentalism. You're right. Situated at the point of production and as beneficiaries of the industrial economy and as biological members of the ecosystem with the factory and the surrounding community, their unique vantage point gave many industrial workers a distinct environmental activism and politics. Could you uh, describe this unique view and point to an example or two of how this played out in Detroit? Yeah, definitely. Workers were among the first to rise uh, to raise the alarm about the environmental crisis in the industrial communities of Detroit, particularly in the downriver uh, area of Detroit. And that's the um, area where a lot of industry is concentrated in the Detroit area, uh, where the famed uh, Ford River Rouge factory uh, is located in Dearborn, which was at one time the world's uh, largest industrial operation. And where a lot of um, steelmaking and petrochemical factories are located. By the early 1940s, workers in those areas were talking about how industry had started spoiling some of their favorite places to go hunting, to go fishing. And they were concerned as sportsmen, almost all of them being men, uh, and many working class men belong to sportsmen's organizations like the Michigan United Conservation Clubs. And there was an environmental writer for the Detroit Free Press, uh, Jack Van Covering, who gave a lot of coverage to the pollution problems that were ruining the lakes and rivers where working class Detroiters depended on um, to to spend their free time. So there were a lot of discharges of waste and and oil into the Detroit Detroit River and some of the other smaller streams and creeks. And um, these were causing uh, massive fish kills and massive duck kills. The labor historian Lisa Fine uh, has talked about this as well. And she writes about the hundreds of dead ducks that were collected on the banks of the rivers, loaded into a pickup truck bed and dumped on the steps of the state capitol building in in a really dramatic form of protest. What I think makes working class environmentalism interesting and and unique compared to some some other forms is that workers were really pioneering what I consider to be kind of a middle ground environmentalism between you know strict preservation of environments versus the unlimited exploitation and abuse of natural resources by industry they were insisting that it was possible to have both industrial prosperity good industrial jobs and a healthful natural environment Um, Or in the words of of one article, they thought it was possible to have both fish and factories. So through their conservation clubs and through their activism, um, they were able to get past uh, in the state of Michigan, the Water Resources Commission uh, and some um, modest at this point, but I think very important steps forward in terms of enforcement measures for water quality. And these would still be very paltry. And the story in the 1950s was kind of the story of workers trying to push those agencies to be more responsive. And when they found out, discovered that industry was becoming very good at capturing the sort of regulatory and enforcement mechanisms, um, they then turned towards demanding federal solutions uh, to to pollution. Um, But I think this is really a story they're really going to um, not only push for federal enforcement, but also push for their labor organizations, their unions to do more about the pollution of the places where they lived and the places where they like to spend their leisure time. And so I see this really as a, a bottom up story mm-hmm. of, of, of workers from below really pushing institutions and organizations and unions to do more on their behalf. Yeah, I was really interested uh, by your discussion of the labor unions uh, and their role in sort of this this burgeoning and, and, and developing environmental movement, right? That the United Auto Workers is actually very involved because of, as you note, this bottom-up pressure uh, to be the voice for this body, right, of, of auto workers. Um, how did the United Auto Workers uh, Union figure into 1960s environmentalism? Uh, and how do they figure into sort of this broader landscape of an uh, metropolitan environmentalism that you're laying out here. 
Yeah, and I, I really became interested in, in what unions were doing about environmentalism, partly because um, there, I think, continues to be um, a, a, a belief that labor unions are antagonist, antagonists or antagonistic to mm -hmm. environmental protection and, and to environmentalists. Mm -hmm. Some of that is for good reason because of some really high profile battles between environmentalists and labor unions over uh, logging in the Pacific Northwest, over um, uh, 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 mining in Appalachia. But the story is, is much more complicated. And I kind of wanted to get into that in this, in this book. And the UAW is an important part of the story of environmentalism uh, in Detroit and, and in fact, nationally. Um, and um, as I was mentioning, and as you as you mentioned, um, they were really feeling pressure from below, uh, from the workers who were demanding that they do more about uh, the pollution of, of, of their communities. Um, Walter Ruther plays a really important role in this, and he's the president of the UAW. Uh, he's elected in 1946 and, and serves in that position until his death in uh, 1971. Um, and he was really responsive to those demands that the union do more. Um, he makes the decision, uh, a really uh, uh, good decision to hire a woman named Olga Madar as his recreation department director in 1947. And Olga Madar was like a force of nature, to use a bad pun. Um, she uh, uh, really saw the recreation department as having a role in um, uh, workers' lives beyond the factory in terms of their leisure time, in terms of how they spent their free time, including fishing, boating, camping, the things that they like to do, both near Detroit and farther afield mm -hmm. in state parks and so on. And, and so it becomes really a, a very important advocate for uh, workers and, um, and, and their uh, uh, environmental um, the, the environmental amenities that, that workers wanted to enjoy. Um, and so responding to that pressure from below, she uh, and she starts to organize some really important uh, water quality conferences in the 1960s that would play an important role in, 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 in pushing environmental um, initiatives into the into the um, sort of national conversation. Um, and then once Lyndon Johnson becomes president and his program, The Great Society, includes a lot of environmental initiatives, Walter Ruther sees this as a, as a time in which the union can really throw its weight behind a federal initiative and starts to become really pushing the Lyndon Johnson administration to be more responsive on environmental, on environmental initiatives. And um, through the 1960s, uh, the union does a lot to promote environmentalism. Um, they, in fact, uh, Walter Ruther uh, donates a significant chunk of money to help fund the, um, the start of the first Earth Day um, by students at the University of Michigan who were organizing an, an environmental teach-in in March 1970, which spawns the first, uh, first Earth Day in April of 1970. Um, and so you see the, U the UAW being really involved from a even before a lot of Americans were paying attention to environmentalism and environmental issues, the union was really involved in, in pushing that into the national conversation and um, really does so until um, the 1970s and the economic problems of the 1970s, which caused a lot of factory closures, uh, the um, recession, uh, the really bad recession of 1973, the um, oil, the embargoes, the OPEC oil embargoes really put a lot of pressure on the UAW and other unions. And the UAW starts to kind of pull back from its environmental advocacy and starts to decide that it can't, that it really needs to focus on just um, staving off factory closures and making sure that in the, and trying to prevent the membership from slipping, so, from slipping too much. And I think it's a, it was a real loss um, having the union pull back from from environmental from uh, being a voice of environmental activism because I think you lost the sort of the UAW was really good at at inserting the working class perspective into the conversation and without that you didn't have a very good um, you lost a really mm -hmm. big voice that was promoting those uh, that perspective that working class perspective.
Yeah, and I think, I mean, personally, as I was reading your book, I was struck by, I, I wasn't surprised that the UAW was as active as it was, um, but it really does remind us that the, the history prior to the 70s crisis and, 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 and the energy crisis and, and stagflation and the recessions, um, that there was no inherent conflict for workers to be a part of an environmental movement. Whereas I just think like that shock of the 70s yeah. really does change that dynamic to your point where it does become a debate about jobs versus nature, right? Um, right. Yeah, I just enjoyed reading that in your book. Yeah, corp corporations start um, uh, using a, a term that uh, is often called environmental blackmail to threaten workers that their jobs are going to go away if they push too much pollution enforcement. Um, but prior to this, uh, Walter Ruther was um, saying that he was going to start um, incorporating environmental demands into collective bargaining, uh, which is really, um, so he saw it as being a tool that could really push around the auto companies. Mm -hmm. And that really very quickly, as you just mentioned with the recessions and with, with stagflation really changes quickly. Uh, in the 1970s, putting workers and their unions on the on the defensive. Mm -hmm. your, your scholarship links the urban crisis of the 1960s with the environmental movement that had been developing over the past several decades. In particular, you discussed the ways in which um, black environmentalism coalesced around a series of crises, including urban renewal, highway development, population loss, and deindustrialization. What sort of policies did African-Americans in Detroit advocate for during this time period? And what does that tell us about sort of this larger urban crisis that is uh, occurring in the city? Yeah, um, these were overwhelming problems facing facing the city, and it was a city that was shrinking in population, shrinking in in, in its tax base, um, really unable to de to deliver um, the services that that a city requires. It was a city that was built for, at its height, 2 million people, and then very quickly starts slipping in population and, and is an expensive city to run when you have so much mm -hmm. of that legacy infrastructure that you're, that you're trying to, to maintain. And so I really see uh, Black environmentalism as being an assertion of the right to survive in the city. And so much of Black environmentalism was about shelter, was about very basic uh, very basic needs. We used to talk about, scholars used to talk about environmentalism as being something that was only possible once kind of your basic needs were met and that um, environmentalism emerges after World War II because people had rising incomes, had more leisure time, had more resources in, in order to devote to environmental causes. Um, but I think Black environmentalism sort of flips that script and sort of shows that environmental issues are very essential for them to surviving in the city. And these were survival uh, issues, putting a roof over their heads, not being removed from their homes in order to facilitate urban renewal. Um, and, and just the way that access to parks, to, to, fresh, uh, to fresh food became really significant issues, particularly um, in the 1970s. Um, and so they were kind of, having to fight battles on multiple, multiple fronts. Um, I think one of the stories that I, I think best illustrates what uh, black environmentalism in the city was about um, is the story of Mildred Smith. And in 1966, Mildred Smith had twice been removed from her home in order to make, make way for urban renewal projects. And, and now in 1966, she was at, being asked to move once again in order to uh, facilitate the expansion expansion of Wayne State University uh, in Detroit, and so she and her neighbors uh, joined together in this interracial organization called the West Central Organization, and together um, they stand up to the authorities that were trying to remove them from their homes. They stage sit-in protests at city council meetings. They uh, confront Mayor Jerome Cavanaugh at his house. They occupy the front lawn of the housing commissioner we're really engaging in uh, confrontational protest tactics in order to be able to, to remain in their homes. Uh, at one point, the housing commissioner actually goes into Mildred uh, Smith's home and, and busts up the toilet, uh, busts up the toilets in the house, trying to make it uninhabitable. 
Um, and uh, this was called the, the Battle of Hobart Street. And uh, something like 22 people were arrested for this. It, it uh, kind of became a, um, created a minor media frenzy surrounding this. And actually in one of the, I think, few success stories that we read about, they were actually successful um, and they had a rare victory, at least for the time being. Uh, the city council granted a reprieve um, and it, it seemed like they'd be able to stay in their homes. And for a while they were, uh, but the story doesn't end there. Um, a few years later, uh, Mildred Smith is now the um, uh, uh, president of, of the neighborhood council. Um, and she uh, helps to preserve the house that she, on Hobart Street, which she had once had to, had to keep from getting bulldozed and turn that, turns that in with the help from um, uh, some suburban high school students into an environmental field center. And she talks about how housing issues had become environmental issues, that there wasn't this like clear demarcation between, okay, this is a civil rights issue, this is a housing issue, and this is an environmental issue, but how things which were which they'd once considered like a, like a housing issue were now being considered environmental, uh, uh, environmental issues affecting the inner city. Um, so I think that's just one compelling example of how housing activism and anti-urban renewal activism later is seen by its participants as environmental activism, but they just didn't have the language for that yet in the mid-1960s, but that would, that would come by the 1970s. Um, yeah, go ahead. No, no, that's, it's great. And it, Again, it, it pushes on that um, uh, for for us nowadays, but also obviously for the people who live through this, right? To expand the definition of what environmentalism meant, and that it can hold, you know, different meanings. Uh, and, and and at a certain point, it's also just about sort of the, the the realities, the physicality of the immediate space in which you live and operate. And in that level, that's also sort of the basis for environmentalism, right? Well, that's yeah, that's exactly right. And and as you mentioned, like so much of the physical landscape was changing and that particularly becomes evident in the 1970s. There is such rapid population loss and abandonment that is taking over neighborhoods in the city. And Detroiters are just trying to do everything they can to sort of manage this. And they were trying to do so um, really on their own because of austerity of uh, city budgets. They were getting very little help from City Hall, um, which was not able to really do a lot for them. And so they start taking over, um, like planting gardens in abandoned uh, neighbors' yards because there were grocery stores that were shutting down and moving out to the suburbs. Um, they start uh, trying to rehabilitate homes that had been abandoned so they didn't look abandoned, so they wouldn't become squatted in or, or have... Um, uh, you know, become ransacked or become overgrown with weeds so that they could keep up their own property values, really having to take over a lot of the functions of basic city services. Um, there's a, a book by geographer Kimberly Kinder called DIY Detroit, Making Do in a City Without Services. And she really makes the case that it was ordinary Detroiters kind of having to fill the vacuum uh, fill that void left by a failing city to do, to do so much of those things that you expect a city to be able to do for you. And one thing that I liked that, that, that she sort of, that I learned from her book and which I try to keep in mind for my own work is as inspired, inspired as I am by the resilience of Detroiters doing all these things, trying to make, trying to get by and survive in the city and I think they're really admirable efforts. I think we have to be careful not to overly romanticize their mm -hmm. efforts because these people would have, the vast majority of people would gladly exchange a functioning city uh, rather than having to do so much of this, this work themselves just to make their uh, neighborhoods, um, neighborhoods livable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you, you know, you point out on the, on the flip side of this, as there is this resiliency, which of course we should not over romanticize, but just sort of the, the, the reality of, people who want to keep their property values up, who want to enjoy the places where they live. You have yeah. this flip side then where inner city Detroit, uh, urban Detroit is getting a reputation uh, uh, because of austerity, right? And then so the landscapes yeah. are uh, run down and not being taken care of, which is then internal, you know, uh, growing this suburban view of urban Detroit uh, that is only making the contrast between those communities um, more 
more ingrained in the cultural minds of Detroiters during that time period, um, which I I, I would still argue, you know, echo through uh, to the modern day. Um, But you have this great line, you, you write in your book, in Detroit suburbs, environmental activism was often inseparable from fears that the environmental problems and the people they associated with urban the urban crisis might be headed towards their backyards. Suburban environmentalism meant exclusion of unwanted people, land uses, and environmental hazards. So what did that look like on the ground level then in the Detroit suburbs? Yeah, that's right. And, and as you just mentioned, it, the way that Detroit experienced the urban crisis then becomes justification in the minds of suburbanites for trying to um, do everything they can to basically contain the urban crisis to the city center and not let that spill over the borders into the suburbs. And so like in 1973, Mayor Coleman Young is elected as the first black mayor of the city. Uh, right around right around the same time, uh, Detroit becomes a majority black city for the first time. And because the urban crisis is going on at the same time, suburbanites, I should say white suburbanites point to black Detroit and say, this is what happens when, when to a city when black leadership takes over in very clearly racist, very clearly racist uh, terms. Um, so it gives more impetus to suburbanites to try to preserve uh, pleasing, pleasing surroundings and a, a like green, um, sustainable, um, beautiful places to live separate from Detroit, trying to create, like trying to um, make that contrast more clear. Um, In the suburbs, environmentalism was much more about preserving a very specific form of living, cementing, you know, the kind of pleasant, leafy, less dense neighborhoods that they had left the city for after World War II, in which they were really trying to keep from being, um, being changed. And especially in the far suburbs or the exurbs, the kind of semi-rural living that they paid a lot of money for, they were they were trying really hard to preserve. And so with the rise of popular environmentalism, with Earth Day and with new environmental laws that were now on the books, suddenly they had a new language, a new set of policy tools that could help them protect their neighborhoods from change, whether that's physical change or demogra- demographic change. Um, and one is the 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 um, physical change and and trying to contain the urban crisis uh, uh, to the to the center um, to the city of Detroit, and to the extent possible also contain the people who they associate with the urban crisis, African Americans to the central city. So one of the new tools at their disposal was the National Environmental Policy Act of 1970, and that establishes the EPA, provides a new legal environmental framework for them to work with. One of the aspects of that is that any project that receives federal funding can be required to produce an environmental impact review or environmental impact study. The idea behind the the legislation or the ideal uh, ideal behind it is that it would create more opportunities for democratic participation in environmental policy making. Um, but the result of that was that people who have more political capital or more actual capital, who have the money, the resources, the time, are better able to capture the potential of environmental law and use it for their own ends. And so it was in, De- in the case of Detroit, it was suburbanites who were most able to effectively leverage those new laws to their advantage. And so they used the laws, the courts, to stall unwanted developments, to preserve the forms of living that they that they pri- uh, prioritized um, and, and that they prized, really. Um, and so they employ a sort of not-in-my-backyard form of environmentalism, or nimbyism, as it's often called, in order to stop the development of several major projects in the suburbs that they thought threatened their bucolic way of living. And some of these include uh, like a super super sewer project, which would have delivered a lot of water quality benefits to the to the region. But they are able to use environmental rhetoric uh, by saying they don't want to see greater density in the suburbs and that the, the problems, the environmental problems that are going to come with that, that something like 
a major sewer system can bring to the suburbs, or even something like building a new metro park. Now, you would think that building a new metro park would fit very comfortably into an environmentalist's agenda of trying to preserve open space in the suburb um, and, and the environmental benefits that, that come with that. But they were saying that that kind of development, a major park in, in the suburbs, would just bring more people, more unwanted people, more development from the city, which they were trying to escape from. And so I became really interested in, in the way that they were that suburban environmentalists were co-opting language of the environmental movement, and sometimes even the language of environmental justice, in order to kind of uh, kind of um, cement in place their idea of what the suburbs should look like. Um, and so there was one environmental uh, graduate graduate student in environmental studies at the University of Michigan who was looking at this controversy over the super sewer system, and said and couldn't decide who the good guys were or the bad guys were in this. Is it the environmentalists who are saying they're environmentalists or is it people, or is it the scientists who, who are saying that um, there's a lot of benefits that are gonna come from a, a, a new sewer system? And he says, well, the real villain, please stand up. Um, so I think that kind of like that example though is kind of shows how it can be really hard to decipher what people's motives are when they're using environmental rhetoric and environmental language. And I, and I do think a lot of it was inspired by very authentic and um, earnest environmental concern, but there was also a lot of willful, sometimes purposeful ignorance about what that meant in terms of environmental inequality uh, for the region. I'm curious, um, ha having done this research and written this book, uh, how do you interpret 21st century Detroit uh, and how do these historical events either, you know, manifest or, 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 you know, still exist? You know, how do you see the long history of your project today? Yeah. I mean, I think that um, the biggest issues facing Southeast Michigan to this day are largely revolve around the inequalities between the city and the suburbs. I think this book shows there can be no real equitable revitalization of Detroit without, without also including sacrifice from the suburbs and without rectifying the um, revenue disparities that have allowed the suburbs to evade any sense of shared responsibility uh, for the city. And so I think a lot of uh, people who moved to the suburbs um, in the 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s just wanted to put Detroit behind them and ignore what was going on in the city and felt very little sense of responsibility for what was what was going on there, despite the fact that um, uh, uh, despite the fact that Detroit was suffering tremendously because of that very um, shift of population out to the suburbs. And so. As I mentioned, you know, it was a city of two, nearly two million people in the 1950s. Now it's a city of 640,000 people um, who are still um, trying to figure out how to live in a city that's very expensive to maintain because it was built for so many mm -hmm. uh, people. And there have been some glimmers of hope uh, and gentrification of small pockets of Detroit, often benefit benefiting really wealthy real estate investors. Um, but to actually make it a recovery for the vast majority of Detroiters, I think the solutions need to be political and they, they, they must be shared by the region and by the state. So I think all this fragmentation, including the, the way environmentalism contributes to that, um, that needs to really be addressed if, if any kind of true equitable revitalization of, of Detroit um, can, can happen. And I, I've been very... Um, encouraged by, by many of the developments that have been going on in Detroit. There's a lot of talk and, and some movement on turning highways into boulevards and, you know, highways had been so destructive, had, had completely wiped out um, uh, neighborhoods of, Afri of mostly African-American residents. Um, and I think those are good things, but you'll never be able to really uh, resolve the problems that had been created in the 1950s and 1960s by these urban renewal programs, by the construction of highways. And so um, maybe what that looks like is uh, reparations for people and their descendants who were ripped from their homes and had their lives upturned by these projects uh, decades ago. I mean, I, I don't know. I just think one of the real challenges is going to be how to make sure that 
um, what, whatever revitalization takes place can take place in a way that doesn't just once again kind of um, reinforce uh, and create new inequalities in the city. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, again, connecting it to your earlier history, I mean, the, the, the individuals who are often leading the charges on what they would have seen as revitalization or renewal, uh, like we know the history of how that was unequally distributed and destructive to people's lives and communities, right? And, and it, the fear is that new projects will simply replicate that uh, with, you know, some new makeup or something, right? Absolutely. But I've been very, I've been very encouraged by the the organizations that are working on these things, they're having those kinds of conversations. They're just very difficult conversations and very expensive to, to do. But I think, uh, I think we've got a much better understanding, um, at least of, uh, and, and I'm just, I'm impressed by the fact that a lot of times uh, in policy conversations, now we are using, we are talking about the ways that highways and the ways that urban renewal projects had created so many problems mm -hmm. and had, had, had contributed to the urban crisis. So I think that's pro progress, but it's it's really hard to um, actually create uh, equitable revitalization. Um, so I'm curious, what what should listeners of, of this podcast, Heartland History, take away from yeah. living Detroit? Yeah, so I titled the book uh, Living Detroit because for many years, Detroit had been this poster child of decline of a dying city, and in a lot of cases depicted as an empty city um, because of so much abandonment, because so there were so many blocks of houses that had been sort of reclaimed by weeds, by trees growing out of roofs, that sort of thing, that there's this idea that nature had, had retaken the city. Um, but what I was really trying to do with this book is to show that this remains a city of people, this remains a living city, um, and that, um, making sure that we are including their stories and their sacrifices and what they did to try to create a livable city amidst so many challenges um, is a really important, uh, really important story. Um, and so much of this hap so many of these stories that were kind of declaring the death of Detroit were taking place during the great recession. And when uh, Detroit in 2014 became the largest city ever to declare uh, bankruptcy. And I think that became just sort of the narrative surrounding Detroit. I wanted to make sure that a lot of the stories of, of sacrifice and resilience of ordinary Detroiters was also being was also being highlighted, um, even though they were working against really overwhelming forces of deindustrialization and population loss and the physical decay of their of their surroundings. And I think this is also important to note as we are facing a climate crisis. I think we often think of the climate crisis as being something that's going to affect us all, that it's coming for us all. And while that's no doubt true, the burdens of that are going to fall unequally on um, vulnerable, minoritized population, populations, marginalized pop populations. And that's something that we've seen with the COVID crisis. And, and while the numbers on that are still evolving, it's pretty clear that the people who lived in, in Detroit got sick and died at rates higher than the wealthier, wider populations surrounding the city. And part of that is caused by environmental and built environmental legacies of, uh, of, the, city, of the city and the way that metropolitan inequality took shape over many, many decades in Detroit. So these are not problems that are going to go away. COVID has shown that, the climate crisis is showing that. And I think we really need to understand their history and how people worked and often failed to create a more secure and a more just and equitable uh, environment. Yeah, great. Um, well, before we before we wrap things up, I'm, I'm curious if you are willing to share anything with our listeners about what you might be working on next. Do you, do you have any projects currently underway that we should be getting excited about? So I published this book. Uh, this book came out in November, uh, just five months ago, yeah. November 2021. <laughs> um, and I've been really like self-consciously not allowing myself to move too quickly onto the next thing. I'm kind of enjoying this and enjoying For conversations sure. like with you that I'm having. I'm really having a lot of fun, um, kind of like just uh, getting to celebrate this book being out and getting to share it with a much wider audience than I, I've ever been able to do before. Um, and so I've been really enjoying getting to uh, do these podcasts. I, I just 
published a, a short essay on the Urban, Urban History Association's blog, The Metropole. Oh, nice. Um, I talk about um, how Detroit historiography has become, uh, has, has become greener and environmental issues are becoming a much more prominent part of, of how we understand Detroit's history. Um, so for now, I'm kind of just uh, enjoying those opportunities and getting to talk about this book and share it with a lot more people. And, and um, this has been really fun, and, and I'm looking forward to doing more of that. Great. I'm, well, I'm excited to go check out that uh, that uh, write-up for the Urban History Association. Yeah, Society. yeah. Uh, yeah, that'll be great. I, I missed that, so I'll make sure to promote that as well. Um, well, Brandon, thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, again, for our listeners, the book is Living Detroit, Environmental Activism in the Age of Urban Crisis from Routledge Press. Uh, I would encourage everyone to get your hands on a copy uh, at your local bookstore or online. Uh, again, Brandon, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to have this conversation with me. Thank you so much, Camden. I really enjoyed it. Great.